Please take your copies of God's Word in hand. Turn with me once again to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9. Where today we will be studying verse 32 through through 43. Verse 32 through verse 43. Hear now the Word of God. Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, and who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the, window, all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down, and he prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon the Tanner. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts. One of the exit requirements... Uh, that I had uh, at RTS Jackson where I went to seminary was that I had to take a test uh, where I would have to uh, write out um, selected questions. I didn't know what the questions were at the time, but verbatim, word perfect, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And like so many things in my life, I waited until the last minute. Should have started studying about a year before. I probably started studying about two weeks before. Now, as you can tell, because I'm standing here, I passed. But I would like to think that there was probably a a fair amount of grace in the grading, I guess you can say. Uh, There were more than a few answers that I gave that uh, they could not have possibly have been word perfect. But nonetheless, I passed. But there's one saving grace in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. One question and answer that I think very few of us would have any trouble reciting. And I would also assume that many of us would have very little trouble ever actually memorizing it. And that is Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I knew that like that, and it was one of the questions on the exam. But I'm going to tell you something. I don't think I've ever actually had to memorize that. I think the first time I read Shorter Catechism Question 1, it stuck to the inside of my brain like glue. And I imagine the same is true for many of you. And I'll tell you why it kind of stuck to me. 
is because it has such a radically different theology of both human life and the glory of God than anything that I had read before. I grew up being utterly scared to death of God. And this is, this is wise. Isaiah is brought to the throne room of God. He falls down and says, woe is me. There should be a fear of God. But I had no clue about the joy of God because I had no clue of the grace of God. If you had asked 12-year-old me what's the worst thing that could possibly happen, my answer would have been, without hesitation, the return of Christ Jesus. That scared me to death. I did not have a gracious idea of God. I knew nothing of his grace. He appeared to me to be a monster. The same was true with Martin Luther, his famous story of him being in confession one day and his, his confessor asking him, he says, Luther, you're sitting here confessing all of these sins and all of this rage and anger. Let me ask you, do you even love God? And Luther's response was, love him. Sometimes I hate him. Luther's problem was the same problem that I had. God to him and God to me, he was a distant, obscure, overbearing, and micromanaging monster. But then you come to Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, and you see that his glory is not simply in the condemnation of sinners, but his chief glory is found in his saving of sinners through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then bringing them to a point where he doesn't just stamp them with his name and stamp them with his salvation, but when he brings them to a point where they enjoy the, his glory, which is found in their salvation. The chief end of man is this, to glorify God and to enjoy him together. The glory of God and our joy and happiness and peace are not things that are separated from one another. When God is glorified, his people will enjoy that. God's glory is not separated from our enjoyment. The Christian is one who has joy when God is glorified, and our God is one who is glorified when we enjoy him. And because of that, he works in us by his grace to bring us to a point of enjoyment. That's also part of his glory, our enjoyment and him bringing us to enjoy him. We enjoy Christ. We enjoy God by grace and by grace alone. And this is exactly what I want us to see in our text today. God's grace working to bring us to enjoy him. We will see this theme in, in two places. First, in the healing of Aeneas, we will see the grace of God bring us to enjoy our communion with him. And then secondly, in the story of the resurrection of Tabitha, we will see the grace of God bring us to enjoy living for him, communion with him and living for him. Let's begin by looking at our communion with God through the healing of Aeneas. Aeneas is a fitting name for someone who has lived the last eight years of life as Aeneas. The word comes from Greek mythology a story of the Greek goddess Aphrodite becoming jealous of the power of Zeus and causing him to fall in love with mortal women. Zeus figures out that 
Aphrodite has done this, and so he turns around and does the same thing to her. He causes her to fall in love with a mortal man, a cattle farmer, and she has a son by this cattle farmer, but when the child is born, she weeps and she mourns because the son is not like her being immortal. Her son takes after her husband, the cattle farmer. He was born a mortal. Gods are not supposed to give birth to sons who die, but she had. He is going to lose his life, and so she names him Aeneas, which means terrible grief. What a fitting name for a man who had lived the last eight years of his life, apparently being a quadriplegic, being bedridden for eight years, incapable of leaving his bed. Being, being a quadriplegic today is very, very difficult. Being one in the first century was torture, totally dependent on everyone, being given over to, to, to bed sores and, and, and pains, being stuck and stuck in your bed. But then one day, Peter comes on the scene. Luke tells us in verse 32 that he's been going here and there. In verse 31, uh, he tells us where he's been going, where the here and there actually is. He's been, he's been going through Judea and Galilee and Samaria, but now he comes to, to Lydda, which is about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Luke does not tell us how Peter came to meet Aeneas, but what is abundantly clear is that when Peter sees the poor man, Peter puts on a likeness to Christ. Christ was a man who was known whenever he saw people who were oppressed by demons, oppressed by sickness, oppressed by paralysis, where he has compassion upon them. Peter, who was a disciple of Jesus in his life, he knew what this was like, and he takes this likeness upon him, and he has compassion for Aeneas. And just like Jesus before him, he wants to show him some mercy some kindness and some charity. But something that you'll notice here is that unlike Jesus, Peter actually doesn't heal Aeneas. What, is, what, is, what, is he, what does he say in verse 34? Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Peter did not heal Aeneas by any worth in himself. There was no piety in Peter that allowed him to be able to do this. It was not any power that came from Peter that allowed him to do this. Peter understands that the power and the compassion that he feels for Aeneas are both his in Jesus Christ. What he feels is the compassion of Christ that dwells within him. He understands that the power to heal does not rest in him or even in his title of being an apostle. But the power to heal the paralyzed man rests squarely with the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why he says Jesus Christ heals you and why he will bow down and he will pray before he raises uh, a Tabitha from the grave. This is the work of Jesus. The glory of Christ is shown in these short verses to be compassion for the weak and in his power to save. When we hear of Christ saving us, we often think of him saving us from our sins, and that's well and good. He does save us from our sins. But he also saves us from the reign of sin. 
He causes us to die to our sins and to be resurrected with him in righteousness. But he goes even beyond that. He saves us from our sins. He saves us from the dominion of sins. But he also saves us from the effects of sin. Death. Sickness. Sorrow. Heartbreak. Misery. All the pains of this world. You see, the healing of this man is a foretaste of the new heavens and the new earth where Christ will come and he will reign visibly. He will publicly declare that he has saved us from our sins, that he has removed them as far as the east is from the west, that we are as righteous as he is because he gives us his righteousness as a free gift of grace. And then what will he do? He will wipe every tear from every eye. There will be no more sickness. There will be no more death. They will be thrown into the pit, and he will reign with us in joy and in light. But right now where we sit, when we pray that we would have healing, just like Aeneas has, he does not always answer this in the affirmative. Sometimes it is the gracious will of God to make his power known through us remaining weak. But there is a prayer that he never, ever, ever says no to. And that is the request to Lord, save me a sinner. And this is the greatest glory of Christ the glory that shines through his cross is the glory that will shine for eternity. The glory of his saint salvation through his blood. This is why Christ in Revelation 5 is described to John as being the lion of the tribe of Judah. The one who sits enthroned, who reigns with a scepter. And yet when his eyes turn to behold the lion king, he sees a lamb slain. You see, the glory of the cross is not something you just look into the past and see. It's not something that you look down at your own mortal bodies and see. It is something that you will see forever and ever and ever. The cross of Christ has eternal benefits and we will always glorify the Lion of Judah who is also the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. Christ, but Christ's glory does not stop at the declaration of our salvation. It continues on into our enjoyment of that salvation. This is the chief purpose of Christ bringing Peter to Lydda, so that the people may see the power and compassion of Christ and in turn be saved. Look with me down in verse 35. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. The word Turn there is used throughout the New Testament to speak of both repentance and conversion. A turning from sin and then turning to Christ. Not just as lamb who takes away the sins of the world, but also as the lion of Judah, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, who we bow our knees to who we go to and say, you're not simply worthy to forgive me of my sin, but you are worthy to reign over my life. You know better than I do. 
You are more lovely than I am. You are more loving than I am. You are more merciful than I am. I submit to your authority. You are the lion and you are the lamb. This complete and utter salvation that the Christian has in Christ is something that leads to an inexpressible joy and an enjoyment of that salvation. We are not to enjoy our we are we are we are to enjoy our salvation and the benefits that it gives us. Uh, but what are those benefits? Look with me down in, in verse thirty four. Aeneas, this is what Peter says. Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. Now, commentators have a couple of different ways of applying this command to make your bed. The majority of commentators, I'm going to give you both of them because I think both of them are really good and very insightful. The majority view of this is by Peter telling him to get up and to make his bed. Beyond just showing the, the fullness of the healing, it also shows us a little bit of what it, what it is to be saved. When you're saved and forgiven and you're made well, that your life has changed. This man has not had to make his bed in eight years. He's been laying there practically conscious, but lifeless. And now, Peter comes to him. And he says, rise. Make up your bed. You're not going to need it for the rest of the day. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that we were once dead when we, when, we, when we believed in Christ, we died with Christ. He tells us in Ephesians 2 that we were once dead in our sins and dead in our trespasses, but now he has made us alive in Christ Jesus. There is a stark difference between being dead and alive. You could tell when Aeneas was paralyzed. You could definitely tell when he was no longer paralyzed. Same thing with Tabitha. There's a difference. You don't have to ask, are you dead? You simply know when the person is living. He's up, he's walking around. This is us. We are saved from sins, not so that we might remain in our sins, not, that, not so that we might reign under the sin's dominion, but we are made alive. If Christ saves you, you will not be the same. You will become anew. You will become alive and you will receive the joy of being called a child of God. But the second interpretation that I want to, really highlight for you that I think it's a minority view, but I think it, I think it contains a, uh, a great deal of, of truth. I, and I think I kind of lean this way. And here the application is toward your communion with God and your communion with the saints. And it all has to do with this idea of, of making a bed in the Greek world in the first century. Um, the commentator Howard Marshall is the one, I had to give him credit, someone that kind of brought this to my attention. And I think he makes some good points. In the ancient world, you didn't make your bed. Uh, you didn't. You didn't. You didn't make your bed because you were done with it. You made your bed because you were getting ready to use it. Uh, if particularly if you were poor in the first century, you didn't even have a bedroom. You just had a common space. Your bed was a mat that you would roll out, and then when you would wake up, people would need to use the room for other things. You would roll it up and put it away. You wouldn't make your bed until you were ready to use it again that night. And in fact, in the Greek, this is. I think what it means, the Greek word here, actually the word bed is not even included in there. The Greek word is spread. Rise and spread out. Make something ready. And here's the thing, in the New Testament, it's not used in reference to making a bed. It is used 
in reference to preparing the couches and preparing the table that would be used for a meal. When Jesus tells his disciples to go into the upper room and there they will find a room furnished and ready for a meal, that word furnished is the same Greek word. You will find a room spread out, made up, ready to receive a meal. And if this is what Peter is saying, what Peter is saying is something very similar to what Jesus says to Zacchaeus. I'm coming to your house today. I'm going to eat with you. I am going to fellowship with you. And what an amazing thing this would have been for Aeneas. Anyone who had come to his house in the past eight years were there to fix him a meal, to give him some act of charity. And now the apostle Peter, the one who walked with Christ, the servant of Christ, the great healer and miracle worker is saying, rise, ready a table. I am eating with you today. I am going to fellowship with you. What a beautiful picture of our salvation. Does, it not, does, this, does this not ring clear of the story of David and Mephibosheth? If, if you're not familiar with that story, Mephibosheth was the, the grandson of Saul and the son of, of Saul's son, Jonathan. Saul was an evil king. He wanted to kill David. And when David becomes king, Mephibosheth realizes what this means to him. I'm a relative of the former king. I'm going to die. And so he runs away from David. But David finds him. And by the way, he's also lame. Mephibosheth is lame, not quite as bad as Aeneas, but he is still lame. David finds him. He brings him into the palace, not to condemn him, not to execute him, but he brings him into his palace and says, Mephibosheth, my table is your table. You will dwell in my house. You will eat my food. You will, eat, you will eat my food with me because I loved your father, because I loved Jonathan. I am now giving you that love. I, don't, I can't give the love to Jonathan, but I can give it to you. And Mephibosheth becomes the adopted son of the king. The same is true for us. We are saved from sin, not to remain in sin, but to remain at the table that has been furnished for us by Jesus Christ. You who were once enemies have been made friends. This is one place where there's a parallel between how we do it in the South and how they did it in the first century. Who, do you, who, do you, who sits at your table? Family. When you invite someone over to your house, someone from church, you're saying, right now, we, we don't have any blood relation, but right now, you're my family. The Lord has gone before us to prepare a place for us in the house of God, and that place is a table. And I think that's what Peter is communicating to Aeneas. Aeneas, you get your legs back. That's fine and good. But there is a place that is prepared for I'm coming to eat with you. You have a new family. And I am part of it. And we're all one in Christ Jesus. And so we have communion and fellowship with God because we have received the grace of his son's precious and saving work. But that fellowship that we have with God is not relegated to the fellowship mill. It moves on into our daily lives where we live before the face of God, Coram Deo. And this is our second and last uh, last point, God's grace brings us to enjoy living 
for him. You see, we commune with him. We are always before his face. That means our lives are lived before his face. So now when you turn your attention in your Bibles to the story of the resurrection of Tabitha, and you, and you kind of just read, read through it, and then as I read through it, maybe you, you started getting a little bit of deja vu, particularly if you've been kind of rooted in the, the Old Testament. You might be saying, a lot of this sounds familiar. Well, where, where do I know, where, do, where, where have I heard this before? You've heard it really in two places. You've heard it in 2 Kings chapter 4. The story of Elisha's resurrecting of the the Shunammite woman's son. And you've also read about it in Mark 5, when Jesus raises the daughter of Jairus from the dead. And if if you're not familiar with the story of Elisha and the Shunammite woman, Elisha was a traveling prophet. He traveled a lot. And his journeys took him by the Shunammite woman and her husband's house pretty often. She was a wealthy woman. She had a lot of means. And she says, here's a man of God. I'm going to help him. And so she, she brings him into her home and she feeds him. And he eats at her table with her husband and with her family. But then she decides that's not quite enough. And so she builds an apartment for him above her house. And now whenever he's traveling, she would invite him in to come and stay and to rest. And he, she even put in like a little table and a desk so that he could, he could do some of the work of the prophet there at her house. And Elisha is overcome with generosity for what, she's, for what she's done for him. And so she goes to her and says, is there anything I can do for you? Can I, can I put in a, a good word for you with the king? Can I, can I maybe put in a good word for you with the, the captain of the guard? And she says, like, I'm, I'm, I'm wealthy. I, I live amongst my kin. I don't need anything. I'm, I'm good. I don't need anything. But this isn't enough for Elijah. He, he's got to do something. And so he sends his servant to basically kind of spy on her, tell me something that she doesn't have that she needs. And he comes back to her and he says, like, well, she's got everything except for one thing. She, she doesn't have a son. And she's, 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 she's up there in age. It's very similar to Abraham and, and Sarah. And so Elijah goes to her and says, I'm going to return to you about this time next year, and you're going to have a son. And she can't believe it. She says, yeah, she says, she says don't lie to me. <laughs> don't lie to me. Don't, don't get my hopes up. But sure enough, the next year he comes back, and she has a son. But tragically, when the boy is very young, he's in the field with his father, and don't know what it is, heat stroke or something like that. He is struck with an awful headache. He is brought back to his mother. Uh, she takes him in his lap, her lap, and he dies. And this is where you see the similarities between Tabitha and the Shunammite woman's son. The Shunammite woman sends for Elijah that her son might be healed. And just as, just as the saints in Joppa send for Peter, the Shunammite woman keeps her son's body in the upper room, in the upper apartment that she had made for Elisha, while the saints in Joppa keep the body of Tabitha in the upper room of her home. Elisha puts everyone out of his, out of his house before he resurrects the boy from the dead. So does Peter. Elisha prays that the Lord will work, and so does Peter, showing once again that it is the power of Christ working through his servants that saves. Elisha did not have the power. Peter did not have the power. It is God who has the power. But Elisha is not the only parallel that we see. We also see it with Jesus in Mark chapter 5 when he resurrects uh, the daughter of Jairus from the dead. And you see the parallels again. While Jesus is on the way, servants come to tell him that Jairus' daughter has died. 
The Joppin saints do the same thing, telling Peter that Tabitha has died. With the exception of Jairus and his wife, Jesus puts everyone outside of the home and resurrects uh, his daughter. Peter does the same thing. And there is even a striking similarity in the language. You might have called in Acts, uh, in Acts chapter 9, when, when Jesus is going to raise her from the dead, he says, Tabitha, arise. When Jesus raises the daughter of Jairus, he says, little girl, arise. And what's funny is we, that Mark gives us the Aramaic there. It is Talitha Kumi. And Acts 9, it would be Tabitha Kumi. It's a one-letter difference. Why would the Holy Spirit over about a 900-year stretch of time, draw these, these, these fine lines of parallel between Elisha, Jesus, and then Peter. I'll let the commentator Dennis Johnson tell you. The mystery that is foreshadowed by Elisha is a revelation that Peter echoed. Jesus Christ stands at the center of history as both the resurrection and the life. If you read Mark 5, you will notice that Jesus does not pray. That's one difference. Elisha prays. Peter prays. Jesus does not. Why? John 10. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. He had the authority to raise himself from the dead. He had the authority to raise the daughter of Jairus from the dead. And he has the authority to raise you from the dead. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. Christ who had authority to take back his life from the grave is the same Christ who has the authority to give you life from the dead. And this is not a hope that you are waiting on. This is a grace and a blessing that you are enjoying right here and right now in this room. You see, Christ's resurrection is, is not a part of his work that we are waiting to receive some benefit of. We are by faith right now partaking of the benefits of his resurrection. Since the time of the fall, all of mankind have been born in a state of spiritual deadness. Listen to what John Owen says. In the beginning, the Holy Spirit moved upon dead matter, which had neither life nor a disposition to it. I love that. Well, I love that word, a disposition to it, and communicated unto it the principle of life. And apart from the Spirit's power, man is born dead, and there lies no disposition within his nature toward God or righteousness. Therefore, the Spirit must effectually communicate the principle of new life. The effectual power of this new life rests in the Holy Spirit, but the foundation of it is the resurrection of the Son of God who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. It is The power belongs to the Holy Spirit, but the foundation of it is when Christ came out of the tomb and walked alive amongst his people. That is the foundation of our resurrection, and we have it right here and right now by faith. You do not believe accidentally. 
you are a new person. You are raised from the dead. Our righteousness is a product of the Spirit bringing the life of Christ into our mortal bodies. We live for God because we have been made alive through Christ's resurrection. We are not so unlike Tabitha. We are not so unlike the Shunammite woman's son. This looks different for different people. This newness of life. Some of us are like Paul. It's very radical. It's very immediate. The works and the service that we do are loud, big, boisterous, big things. That's the minority. The majority of our service, the majority of our newness lives takes on a more subtle character. Tabitha is a wonderful example of this. She was a woman who was full of grace, full of good works, full of charity. But look with me down in verse 39 where, where Luke is going to specify what her good works were. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. Tunics. That's underwear. An undergarment worn against the skin. And look at how the people loved her. You see, this is what I told the the children down here. In the kingdom of God, there is no such thing as small services. Even the smallest service that you can offer is sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is a pleasing aroma to the holy, holy God and creator of the heavens and the earth. That is an incredible thing. Even if it's just being a seamstress. She's not an apostle. She's not a prophet. She's not a tongue speaker. She's not a miracle worker. She's so And yet look at the effect that it had in people's lives. And the same is true for us today. Churches across the world, people doing small services for a big God who sanctifies them. Like my kids have lots of stuffed animals, but there's two things that they love more than anything, and that's their blankets. Those blankets didn't come from a department store. They were sewn by a little Korean lady named Inyan who whenever there was an announcement of a birth, she would get out her needle and thread and she would knit little blankets because she loved her brothers and sisters in Christ and she loved those covenant children that were born to them. My children love those blankets. That has been such a blessing in our lives. And the same is true here. It's not just Westminster. It's the same is true here. Some of us, we bake sweets. And we, we bring them to people with, in need, like, 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 like Pam. Some of us, we just know where the fish bite. And so we go and we take the youth and we bring them to them, like, like Roger. Some of us, we, we, like to, we cook, we clean, we serve, like Barb and, and Bob. Uh, I mentioned yesterday at the funeral service, there's going to be a, a Bob-shaped hole in this church. That was a, that was a small service. Washing a dish. I remember like we, we had uh, the, the elders over for a session Christmas party. And we're all fellowshipping and having a good time. And then we turn around to do the dirty work of washing the dishes and the pots and pans. And they're all done. I don't know how long Bob and Barb had been in there doing that. But that blessed us. We were, at, we were planning to stay up all night cleaning up. And we didn't have to. What a blessing that was to us. 
There are no such things as small services in the kingdom of God because all service is sanctified and used by Jesus Christ for the salvation and hope of his people. And so maybe you're asking, how can I, what little service can I offer? It's easy. It's easy. Ask yourself, what do I enjoy doing? Secondly, ask yourself, is it good? Thirdly, test its goodness according to the word of God. And if it is good, fourth, do it for somebody to the glory of God. You might, you, might like, you might like cutting grass. Cut grass for somebody. You might like cleaning up dishes. I hate doing dishes. You might like doing dishes. Do dishes. Do something for somebody else for the glory of God. It is, it is that easy. We have the tendency to sit back and wait. Well, well God, if he's going to do something through me, it's got to be big. It's got to be big. Look at Tabitha. She made tunics. Be faithful with the gifts that you have. And God will bless you immensely. And he will bless his church immensely. God's glory is for you to enjoy him, to enjoy worshiping him, knowing him, communing with him, and to also enjoy living for him. I am so often slow to do this in my own life, but this is my solace. God is not only glorified by my enjoyment of him, he is also glorified by his causing me to enjoy him. So may his grace heal us as it healed Aeneas, May his grace resurrect us as it resurrected Tabitha, and may his grace bring him glory by bringing us to enjoy him forever. Our Heavenly Father, we love you so much, and it is so incredible that as big as you are, that you would do such big things through such little people with such little gifts. But, Father, your power is made manifest in weakness. Your sovereignty is made manifest in your son's service. And so, Father, make us become more like your son. May no service, no, may no gift, may no enjoyment be so small that we cannot, we cannot share it with God's people and our big God. Father, would you do this for us and make us like Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.